discussing alternative currencies. No, I <laughs> please, please don't send me money. <laughs> All right, so it's recording? Yep. The things we need to do to defend the dollar's dominance, if we were really worried it would be threatened, is get sounder money mm -hmm. and, you know, <clears throat> try not to use it as a bludgeon, especially against countries which are big enough to matter. Anyway, that's up. <laughs> For decades, the U.S. dollar has been the focal point of global commerce. American currency has formed the foundation of international trade deals and even the base of entire national monetary systems. This privileged position has been brought about by a combination of geopolitical and economic circumstance, as well as the uniquely sound American principles that make uses of the dollar attractive. Today, however, we're seeing a shift away from global dollar usage and the rise of rivals such as China vying for their own slice of the monetary pie. Furthermore, interesting experiments in commodity standards and cryptocurrency challenge the very foundation of fiat, of fiat currency and central banking. It is an exciting yet frightening time for the U.S. dollar. Joining us today to talk more about this phenomenon is Pete Earle. Pete is on the research faculty here at the American Institute for Economic Research and has spent decades on Wall Street in studying financial economics. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. So you pointed out a couple of weeks ago in an article that China and Brazil decide to settle their transactions in their own currencies rather than the U.S. dollar. So I guess to our listeners, why should we even care? What does that even mean? Well, the, the dollar is the reserve currency. It's the global reserve currency, which means that it uh, is sort of the default currency that's used to settle trades and used as a, um, uh, a unit of account in international transactions. So moves away from the dollar speak to a desire to create a new international order monetarily in terms of what currencies are used uh, to settle trades in, what are used to denominate trades and all that sort of thing. It speaks to a desire to shift away from the, the, the current sort of center of gravity of global finance. Mm -hmm. And so I guess some context that prior to that, all these trades might have been settled in U.S. dollars. Um, the Chinese, even though they have their own currency they want, and the Brazilians, they call it, I think it's called the... Uh, real. The real, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of using... They probably use their own currencies in their own countries, but when they're, if you're going to use currencies to settle an international um, trade deal, you might use dollars. Yeah, that's right. So, so, the, so the dollar is... Uh, is liquid, it's globally available. The US has a massive economy, so dollars are found everywhere. The US also has a massive debt hmm. uh, um, uh, complex. We have lots of different securities, whether it's treasuries, uh, government agencies, and all that. And for that reason, uh, nations that hold foreign exchange reserves in dollars can invest it in asset-bearing form. So for a number of reasons, a number of infrastructural reasons, in addition to just the size of the U.S. economy and, and the length of time the dollar's been dominant, it is really the default currency for international trade. But as, as you pointed out, we now see some signs that there are actually some efforts to move away from the dollar. Mm. And so take me through how this, for example, the Brazilian-Chinese arbitration via their own currencies works, right? So before they would have just said, you know, this deal is going to be worth a billion dollars, here's a billion dollars worth of U.S. dollar, now they're going to use yuan and Brazilian currencies. So how exactly would they go about doing that? Well, I think what, what they would do is they would come up with a, they, they would, at the time of the trade, they'd find out what the exchange value was, and then they would exchange that amount, and they would settle on either side, settle for whatever the goods or services were on one side, whatever the, the currency was on the other, and then the transaction would be booked. But uh, I, I suspect that 
there are difficulties in using the real because it's probably got a very a comparably thin float. There's not as many reals out there as there mm -hmm. are dollars. The yuan is much bigger, but it's still very small compared to the dollar. So the question would be, why would they do this if you know the dollar is more liquid and there's more of a technological infrastructure and all that sort of thing? And the answer is because they don't want to be uh, on the hook or, or otherwise captive of either the Federal Reserve's policies or um, the U.S.'s increasing willingness to use the dollar as sort of a, a bludgeon for uh, sanctions and other punitive uh, measures in international uh, uh, affairs. Mm. So part of that shift away would be, as you said, uh, more experimental policies at the Federal Reserve. They don't yeah. know if they're gonna, there's going to be a trillion dollars printed tomorrow, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, China, which is quite understandable, does not want to be on the hook, say, if the U.S. decides to cut them out of SWIFT for invading Taiwan, for example, exactly. human rights violations. Yep, I think that's the big concern right now. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so from a Brazilian perspective, as the Brazilians, I'm assuming they're a big trade partner of both the U.S. and China. They're in the U.S.'s strategic orbit in Latin America. Why would Brazil even consider... Uh, doing something like this. So the, so Brazil is within the strategic orbit of the U.S., but they are much bigger trading. They, they are one of the biggest trading partners of China right now. Mm. So, uh, and also, you know, we have this sort of, uh, at the present time, we just have a sort of a left-wing swing mm. through most of the governments of South America and Central America. So that might... Uh, that might be contributing to the feeling uh, of those nations and others in the world that they at least need, uh, if not to abandon the dollar, but at least to have alternatives. So mm -hmm. in, in, in the case of a contingency or something, they can switch to something else and now they'll work out the kinks. They'll work out the technological measures. They'll figure out, you know, what other sort of uh, things need to be in place to make these trades as, as, as seamless as possible. Mm -hmm. And we're also seeing diff uh, similar transactions with Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. um, that was probably the most famous one, which is also a huge trade partner of the U.S. and also a strategic partner. Yep. And so, and then you also have, I guess, more understandable ones with North Korea, Russia, Iran. Like these countries already, you know, they're probably already cut out of the system to begin with. So, transaction transacting in one makes sense. But why do you think a country like Saudi Arabia? would uh, consider breaking away from the U.S. dollar as well? Well, the, the relationship right now between the U.S. government and Saudi Arabia is pretty rocky, mm. and it's been rocky for some time, probably 20 years. And again, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the various uh, spheres of influence that these nations fall into is sometimes numerous. You know, Saudi Arabia is a Middle Eastern nation, uh, but it also has close ties to China. China is using a lot of oil these days. But it also, it's tied to the U.S. Um, Saudi Arabia has had, you know, different dealings with uh, uh, Israel and other nations that the U.S. is aligned with. So I, I think the lessons uh, that are being learned around the world from the uh, from the effects of kicking Russia out of SWIFT, or mm -hmm. you know, most, not all, Russian banks out of SWIFT, is that even if your relationships with the U.S. Are, are, are good right now or as good as they get, it's probably wise to have uh, backup it, it lined up so that you're not kicked out of international trade uh, suddenly and have nothing else to, to do, mm. nothing else to use. Mm. So before I move on to that point, I want to ask mm -hmm. a question about just how exactly did we get here to begin with, i.e. the U.S. dollar as the universal currency, uh, given all these concerns about uh, federal federal interference in the money, money supply, mm -hmm. being kicked out of SWIFT, right? So these are, you know, understandable concerns. So how did the U.S. dollar become dominant to begin with? So the, so the dollar was, was, was really placed there um, in the Bretton Woods Agreement. The mm -hmm. dollar was made uh, uh, the center of, of, of really tra of trade. Um, 
the U.S. would hold gold, dollars would be denominated, uh, dollars would, would essentially be the global currency, and then all the other nations would price off of that. That ended in 1971, but because that system is highly path-dependent, because there are high barriers to exit and because there are high switching costs, even after the Bretton Woods Agreement was ended, and uh, also because at that time we entered a, uh, the U.S. entered a period of really rapid and broad financialization, mm. the dollar has become even more entrenched since the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, collapsed. And so uh, the dollar is really, it's really at the center of the system. Um, the U.S. has a massive economy that trades globally. We also have a massive, massive number of, uh, of, of uh, amount of debt out there, 31 trillion plus you know, other instruments. So uh, there's a lot of factors that led to the U.S. becoming uh, sort of, and the dollar becoming entrenched in this way. But uh, um, again, this is something that uh, I think uh, was, long viewed as a potential risk, but now I think it's being viewed more and more as an existential risk. Hmm. So I'm assume, I guess a summary, during the latter half of the 20th century, there's essentially like an economic power vacuum, which the U.S. was able to fill mm -hmm. as sort of like the main, I mean, World War II devastated most of the other advanced economies. The yep. U.S. is just the one big superpower. Um, so are you saying that while this was created, Bretton Woods II, um, were countries already skeptical to begin with that they just didn't have any other choice? Like, how exactly did this go down? I don't think a lot of them had many other choices. Mm. I mean, we have to recall that, like, the Soviet Union, um, despite, I mean, when I grew up, it was like this fearsome country. But, I mean, when you look at the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, when it collapsed, only had maybe $100 billion worth of debt. Mm. So the, the, the economies of many of these other nations, and, and, you know, China was still evolving. So a lot of these other nations were tiny. But now we're competing on a little more of an equal playing field. Now um, nations are willing to sort of flex their muscle within their spheres of influence. Um, there are a lot of different trading partners out there. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think now we're, we're seeing the effects of uh, some of these nations coming of age and deciding that they don't want to be beholden to the U.S. dollar or to U.S. interests. Mm. So what you're saying is that the age of U.S. dollar dominance, that perhaps forty dec four four decade or more, I'm not going to place a timeline on it, but that time timeline between the latter half of the 20th century till now was sort of an aberration. There wasn't necessarily anything special about the U.S. dollar, um, besides the fact that there was a power vacuum. Well, I mean, you know, again, massive economy. Um, some people would say that, you know, our system of property rights, mm. um, the, you know, SWIFT has been around since the early 70s. So there's a, there's a lot of longstanding institutions that are holding the dollar in that area. But the thing is, again, um, there's a question of trade-offs. And so when nations see uh, what happened to Russia, and um, even before that, a little bit Iran, but it was more, pretty more, it was, it was more pronounced in the case of Russia, um, the effects of being essentially booted out of the dollar trading system. Mm -hmm. I think they are they are more interested now in accepting the trade-offs of maybe trading in a less liquid currency or maybe not having the option of putting their foreign exchange reserves in some sort of debt and rather want to at least be sure that they have a way of, 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 of staying engaged in international trade if they get if they were to get kicked off or you know somehow find themselves in uh, America's bad graces. Mm. So you think that the de-dollarization that we're seeing today is not necessarily what some pundits pundits might say as the fall of the U.S. dollar. It's more of a hedging mechanism. No. Um, just more representative of shifting geopolitical concerns. Yeah, I think it's hedging. And mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I do believe there are some nations out there, um, some nations that are particularly displeased with the U.S. who would like to see the dollar go by the wayside. But I don't think that's a realistic thought. I also believe that uh, 
right now it's more of a it's more of an issue of of, of, of risk management and hedging away from uh, you know what is what many didn't know is actually sort of a a, a single point of failure. Mm. Their dependence upon the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. So do you think, so, like, let's talk more about these countries that would like to challenge the U.S. dollar mm -hmm. on the wholesale rather than just hedge, right? So right. I guess China would be the big, uh, big elephant in the room. Do you see the Chinese as trying to really make the yuan the what the U.S. dollar was or is, or do you think it's they're just more trying to have their own slice of the pie? If they are trying to do that, it's, it's impossible right now. The mm -hmm. type of reforms that would be required internally, I, I'm not an expert on, on, on China, but the type of reforms that would be required internally are not going to happen. Mm. Uh, it has a closed capital account, so you can't invest. You know, there, there's controls on, on capital entering and leaving China. And additionally, the yuan is pegged to the dollar, mm. and it, and the value of the yuan is manipulated to to make trade more favorable. So, all of those things would need to be abandoned in order for the yuan to basically compete more directly with the dollar. And also, China would have to have lots of debt, because uh, one of the things. And by the way, there's a bit of a chicken and egg sort of uh, two-way causality there, because if you have more debt. Uh, I, well, I mean, the thing is that when you issue, the, the debt becomes a way of, of holding foreign reserves. Um, so it, it, China would need to have more debt in order to do it. So there's a lot of factors there that, that, that make that really, I mean, between slim to impossible at this point for the yuan to replace the dollar. I mean, a, a lot of things would have to change. Hmm. So when, so I guess back to my original question, there, 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 so there is something specific about the way the U.S., dollar works in the sense that the U.S. is more willing to take on debt, more willing to be a global strategic presence, i.e. like a lot of countries really enjoy that strategic umbra military umbrella yeah. um, and in a sense that kind of incentivizes uses of the dollar. So there might actually be something special about the, the U.S. that makes the dollar uh, fit for a global currency. So the use of the dollar creates some demand for U.S. treasuries because, mm -hmm. again, every nation in the world um, that uses dollars, even corporations, you know, they need to have a place or they, they, they view it as necessary, modern finance being what it is, to generate returns on those stack, or those, or those piles of dollars they have. So the use of the dollar requires, you know, uh, essentially requires these instruments. So that's where a lot of the demand for, especially short term, let's say uh, U.S. government bills, that's you know one month, basically one year, notes one year to 10 years. The shorter term U.S. government paper, um, a lot of times is convenient for holding dollar balances. Um, but, th but there are a lot of aspects there, certainly. I mean, uh, the U.S.'s ability to project power, um, again, the size of the U.S. economy, uh, the you know, property rights, a lot of those things factor into the dominance of the dollar. But uh, right now, there are very few nations that have all of the things that they that they would need to have in order to really compete. Some have open capital accounts and mm -hmm. some have, you know, floating currencies, but they're just tiny. I mean, someone said to me after I wrote the article, what about the Swiss Krona? I said, mm -hmm. that would be great if Sweden was, you know, yeah. 500 or 10,000 times, you know, its size. So there, it's Korean won, you know, there's a lot of examples of currencies that, that have the right characteristics, but the, the, the nations that are, that are issued are just too small. Mm. So maybe let's talk a about a jurisdiction that is quite large and quite trustworthy, mm -hmm. the EU, I'm assuming, and what sure. some people might think about. So yep. what exactly is stopping the EU from taking the dollar's place? So the EU is probably the second runner-up. Um, one, one of the issues with the EU is that they, uh, they, they 
it's still a, still a somewhat small economy for the size. Mm. Um, and also, you know, there are issues when you have a union like that, a currency union or an economic union of the tragedy of the commons. Mm. There are often nations that are not want to go along with certain policies. We saw a little bit of that in 2013, 2014 with Greece and some other nations that were having troubles. So um, that's also, I think, a flaw of the planned BRICS plan, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, mm -hmm. South America, South Africa um, plan to issue a currency is, you know, these things act a little bit like cartels, and at mm -hmm. times it's going to be one or two nations are going to be have to, are going to have to subordinate their interests to those of others as they make policies regarding how these currencies are going to be used and how, you know what kind of debt they're going to issue or whatever they do in that regard. So I think that's a flaw. You know, you would need to have a pretty big economy. And uh, unity of focus, I think, to make these things work. Mm. So essentially, the the coherency of the U.S. as a country, rather than a bunch of various states that are coming together as some sort of almost like a confederacy, I guess, right, um, is essential for having a stable currency and stable policy. So, so if the desire not to be bound to the dollar was strong enough and persistent enough, it might work. But I have to believe that just like anywhere else, I mean, it happens with U.S. states, that eventually one of those nations is either going to decide, one or two or, or a number of them are going to decide either that they are being subordinated, their interests are being subordinated, or the U.S., if, it, if they were, you know, successful, the U.S. and its allies might try to lure one away or, you know, mm -hmm. try to disrupt the uh, cartel, as it were. So mm -hmm. I, think that's, I, think, I think that's one Achilles heel. That's the Achilles, Achilles heel of, um, of the EU, um, as well as the fact that uh, I, I, I know that there's EU debt. I'm not sure if the debt is sufficient for the kind of use that the euro would have to see to compete with the dollar. Mm. And so going back to um, other large coherent countries, China, for example, yep. India is sort of coming onto the stage. Yep. Um, like you said, but you, as you said, BRICS, BRICS the, the I in BRICS is not necessarily, um, the BRICS model is not necessarily bearing too much fruit. So what exactly do you think these countries will ever try to um, create those sound incentives to make their, make their currency more international, or do you think that's politically impossible? I think it's infeasible right now, especially with the, especially given the ease with which the dollar is used. But again, I mean, incentives are in line now to work on that, mm -hmm. um, especially given what we've seen in the last year. And um, I, I definitely think that 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 right now uh, we're going to see more interest. I just read something the other day that said some thirty other countries have have said that they would follow. The BRICS uh, uh, currency plan, if 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 it if it worked out, but I mean, some of these countries are very very small and have uh, very they don't have a lot to offer. I don't think numbers like 30 countries or 20 countries or 50 countries really says very much. I think it depends much more what those economies represent and how you know how large they are, where they are, all these other intangibles. I think are going to be more important than uh, than just a sheer number of countries. Mm -hmm. So you, I guess to wrap up this part of the conversation, the threat of the, the yuan or some sort of other currency overtaking the U.S. and booting the dollar out of dominance is mm -hmm. not necessarily, at least for the short term and foreseeable future, it's not something that we should be worrying about. I think there's, unfortunately, many, many other things Americans <laughs> can be worried about right now with sticky inflation and a slowing economy and so many other things. I think the, uh, the uh, uh, concerns about the dollar, meaning the reserve currency, are, are, are would 
those things would take a while to evolve. But also, I mean, let's say, you know, you blinked and we woke up tomorrow and then some other currency, some BRICS currency was the global reserve currency. There would be, there is some, some issues, but it's not the kind of existential threat that means the end of the U.S. I mean, I've heard all these apocalyptic, you know, scenarios. The, 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 the British pound was the reserve currency for a while. For a while it shared that role with the U.S. and then it disappeared. And last I checked, England's still on the map, mm -hmm. still a country, mm -hmm. you know, so these are not things to, to lose sleep over. Mm. And then, well, I guess to d dive into that point more, mm -hmm. let's say, Fast forward 20 years in the future, right. um, the U.S. Mm -hmm. continues its uh, money printing, continues to cut certain countries out of the monetary sure. system. China does some capital reforms. They get their act together. The, the yuan starts to pick up, right? Yeah. Um, some people do say that that comes with a lot of a lot of the U.S. A lot of U.S. fiscal policy is kind of predicated on the dollar being That's held. That's very right? true. Yeah. So, so I mean, what what we would see is first of all, the demand. If the demand for dollar were to fall, okay. First of all, that would have effects on imports and, and, and exports. But mm -hmm. also, less demand for the dollar means less demand for U.S. Treasuries, which mm -hmm. means two things. Um, in the short term, it means higher yields. It means uh, the U.S. would have to essentially, you know, attract buyers with higher yields uh, relative to whatever else is out there in the uh, in the sovereign in the global sovereign debt market. But uh, more importantly, it means that if there is less of a market for U.S. debt. The government starts to look at things like more money printing, higher taxes, other means of mm. sort of raising money. So uh, those might take, you know, years after that sort of switch from a dollar to a yuan or whatever else would happen. But there, there are real consequences. I mean, mm -hmm. those would, that would be some of them. I mean, we've seen just, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a $50 billion sale of 30-day U.S. Treasury bills be sold for like 5.84%, mm. which is the highest price in, I think, 20 years. And that's just because there was a chance that in two or three weeks, this again was a week or two ago, there was a chance in two or three weeks, you know, this debt ceiling issue might not be resolved. So, I mean, that's 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 purely speculative and we have yields going up. Mm -hmm. I mean, who, who knows what would happen if, you know, some of these auctions of treasuries didn't go as well and it was, you know, pretty visible that there was... Uh, uh, the, the downward sloping demand curve for, for treasuries was actually manifesting. Mm. I think you've got to have real consequences for the marketability of U.S. debt and the yields um, that uh, the U.S. government would have to pay. And, that's, and that would be years from now. Right now we're at $31 trillion in debt. Who knows what the number would be then? Mm. So essentially, do you think it's an exaggeration to essentially say the countries who buy our debt, i.e. the Chinese, the Japanese, they're essentially financing your ability to do public spending, uh, our military, our healthcare yep. services? Mm -hmm. So some people might say, and you know, the MMTers or just people who believe strongly in public finance would be would say like, so how exactly does that work? Does it have, if there's less countries holding U.S. debt, will be able, would, would we be able to engage in the level of uh, money, money printing, financing of public services or like, yeah. So how exactly does this all work out? So so if if there was less demand for the dollar, there would be less demand for these treasuries because the size of the foreign exchange reserves would be smaller. Um, it would mean that the, 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 the piles of dollars that are now sitting in uh, central banks and currency boards and major multinational corporations in their coffers um, would be either replaced by something else or spread out among more different currencies. And that means less of a market for U.S. debt, which means, again, that the government would have to find other ways of financing its uh, expenditures. Uh, taxes, money printing, um, 
whether they would just print money directly or whether they would, you know, engage in uh, um, uh, you know, purchasing, having the Treasury issue debt and then purchasing it and keeping it on the on the on the uh, on the Fed's balance sheet. All you know, those uh, no one can really say, but it would be some combination of other sources of financing instead of selling that debt. Mm -hmm. And would we be able to print money like we used to or still do if the U.S. dollar was not as dominant as it is today? I don't think the printing presses would necessarily run slower, but I definitely think the effects mm -hmm. of printing the same amount of money when there's less demand for the dollar than as much as there is now mm -hmm. uh, would probably it probably manifest more quickly. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of questions there, like how is the money being printed and where is it entering the uh, uh, you know the financial system? It typically enters through banks. So I think that there's some, there's some nuance with that, but I think certainly. Um, it would uh, the effects would be would manifest more quickly in the economy if there was just less of an appetite around the world for U.S. dollars. Mm. So, yeah, I guess to clarify my question, i.e., less demand for U.S. dollars met with an increasing supply of U.S. dollars is quicker inflation. I'm assuming. Uh, absolutely. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So essentially, if the U.S. dollar is not as use as useful or, or demanded, if we try to finance our various services with money printing, you're just going to get have to do inflation. it carefully. Mm. <laughs> it would have to be done very carefully. Mm. So yeah. I guess you would. So I guess you could say that a lot of the big stimulus spending that we see today is in part enabled by the fact that U.S. dollars. I mean, the ability to feel the massive killing machine around the world, mm. um, the ability to, you know, finance, you know, I mean, just just the types of programs that that are open ended and that are legislatively created to expand every year. All of that has to do with this exorbitant privilege mm. that having the global reserve currency you know, uh, uh, affords us. And also um, with the, th that dominance in turn allows us to issue all this debt. Um, a lot of that would uh, would, uh, would would evaporate uh, and, and, and withdraw without, you know, the dollar in that role. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, this is, this America is a great country. We have uh, great uh, institutions, but uh, a lot of people I, I think believe that um, we have all this stuff around us because we're that smart. Mm. A lot of it has to do with strategic decisions made 70 or 80 years ago that have given us, you know, an opportunity to grow like this. We also didn't have a massive war mm. um, in our in our backyard, but um, um, you know, some 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 of the edge that we have um, is, uh, is 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 drying up right now. So uh, more and more, we're going to have to compete more equally with other with other nations in terms of trade and uh, global finance and our own policies. Mm. And do you think uh, rival countries like China are uh, looking to, do they think they want to essentially enjoy the same benefits that the U.S. previously enjoyed by internationalizing the yuan? For, so I guess to clarify the question, do you think the Chinese government is in part looking to make countries use the yuan so they too can engage in bigger spending and money printing? I think that might be part of it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so there's three things, right? That might be part of it to enjoy some of those benefits which the U.S. has sort of had almost exclusive access to for many years. Um, another one is just to, to get away from the uh, the possibility that you can be shut off or you know kind of mm -hmm. lo locked out of international trade overnight if you do something that angers the U.S. But there's another thing too, and there's an element of national pride. Like, mm -hmm. I, 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 I keep on thinking like if I was. And let's just, I'm not going to use any particular country. Let's say Nation X. If I'm the dictator of Nation X and I'm telling everybody, you know, I'm keeping the barbarians at the gates, I'm providing you with all these things, but yet all my citizens 
want to do is acquire pieces of paper with a picture of Lincoln on it. Mm-hmm. It sort of undermines <laughs> my legitimacy, you know? Mm-hmm. I want to be able to say, no, we use, you know, we, we use the euro currency because, you know, because we're that great and because we are in control of our own destiny. There's a nationalistic, jingoistic element to it as well. Mm-hmm. I think there's some national pride to it. So uh, those three things. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about that a little bit more. In mm-hmm. your articles, you pointed out uh, various experiments at uh, kind of like the regional level, yeah. uh, different parts of the world, with countries experimenting with their own forms of currency, trying yep. to create new ones. Yep. Uh, you mentioned African states sort of tying their currencies to land titles. Um, you talk about uh, countries experimenting with commodity standards, tying mm-hmm. their currencies to commodities rather than the U.S. dollar. Yep. So, and then I guess the big buzzword now is Bretton Woods 3. Yeah, yeah. So the, the idea of Bretton Woods 3, and it's, it's pretty complex, but the idea is that um, nations would, 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 would uh, use currencies or would use a currency that is backed by some local uh, source of wealth or commodity. You could see um, African nations using titles to land or, 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 or mining deposits for uh, rare earth metals or things like that. Uh, of course, there's a lot of nations that have oil. Mm. You know, all, think of all the OPEC nations, um, things like that, and that they would essentially um, they would essentially back their currencies in that way, such that uh, they, they they couldn't really be knocked out of the global economy on the basis of simply having pieces of paper. There would be some 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 price to be paid, and each one would 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 transact. Now, how exactly? Like, let's say. I have, you know, a million dollars. I'm a treasurer of something, a nation or a company. I have a a billion dollars worth of notes backed by some alkali earth metals, right? Okay, how do I take delivery on that? Do they actually have to dig it up or whatever? So I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot of of issues there, but um, that's uh, that's 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 a shift away from the fiat system. Mm. That's a way of really putting skin in the game for nations that would either try to impinge upon nations access other nations access to international finance or to uh, to uh, sort of um, uh, keep uh, it, I guess you could say it's sort of meant to keep everybody honest mm. whether or not it would do that I don't know but th- these are the things being bandied about mm. so actually that raises an interesting point of uh, that's not necessarily about I'm sure there's some concerns over the US dollar and all the various concerns about the geopolitical issues and the political mm-hmm. Controls, yep. but you just—you've also just raised another point, which is just the general sanctity of fiat currency, whether or not we want to stay on that. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the um, you know, the Fed is in many ways, the Federal Reserve is in many ways uh, uh, a very flawed institution. You know, all of the characteristics of uh, of central banking, you know, inflation bias, monetary, unpo- uh, monetary policy uncertainty, all those things manifest. But in many ways, uh, the Federal Reserve is still pretty much, you know, the, the gold standard for central banking. A lot of its practices, certainly Federal Reserve officials write papers that are read around the world. There's a lot of sort of follow the leader behavior. Um, the Fed opens swap lines when there are catastrophes, that sort of thing. So, so the Fed is still very much uh, sort of a thought leader and, and a policy uh, source in the world, but it's done some some. It, it's it really has sort of an error-prone three or four years now. You know, we had this explosively expansionary policy in the beginning of COVID, and then as prices began to rise, they said it was uh, said it was transitory, hmm. and then of course they abandoned that, and then they engaged in this incredible sort of catch-up 
uh, phase where they raised rates so quickly that they destabilized corners of the financial system. Um, and uh, so, so getting away from the Fed's policies as well, like you said earlier, I think that's a, that's a good example. You know, no one can guarantee that the Fed won't print a trillion dollars overnight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's doubtful that they will, <laughs> but it's, a, it's much easier um, if you have, if you're a, if you're a, a national, uh, uh, um, yeah, if you're president or, or whatever of some nation, it's a lot easier to uh, keep an eye on your own Federal Reserve, your own central bank, mm -hmm. as it were, uh, rather than uh, having to hope that uh, the central a central bank of a nation that you may not be friendly with halfway around the world, mm. you know, does things that don't affect you or does things that affect you. Mm. And do you think after so you mentioned the money printing for COVID, mm -hmm. uh, the European Union also engaged in similar policies? Sure. Do you think that Bretton Woods Three, i.e., this rethink about whether we want fiat currency or commodity standards, is essentially a skepticism towards the entire model as a whole, not just for the U.S. I don't believe that any of the nations, if they were to suddenly have or, 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 or come into the role of the issuer of the global reserve currency, would necessarily tie that to a commodity standard. I think they mm. would love to enjoy the fiat standard for a while. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the Fed, Fed missteps are certainly an element that's driving nations away from wanting to use the dollar. It, it might be the secondary, the second, third, or fourth reason, but um, it's a reason. Mm. And I guess maybe let's talk about people who might make it the first reason, i.e. the Bitcoiners. So, <laughs> yeah. Where do you think that kind of stand? Do you think Bitcoin at all is affecting de-dollarization? Do you think it's a alternative to the dollar in any way, shape or form? I think it is. Uh, I think it's still very volatile. Um, the availability of hedging in uh, certain futures markets is, is, is and, and, and doing, you know, forwards and that sort of thing to hedge the incredible volatility that Bitcoin, less than used to be, but Bitcoin still shows occasionally. I think Bitcoin is helpful in that regard. I do think that there were, you know, if, if, if there were an emergency, some small country finds itself cut out of the international system, you know, they might have deemed it worth it to have some Bitcoin on hand. But I, you know, I don't know what the, I don't anymore remember what the float of Bitcoin is, whether it's you know, 250 billion, 500 billion, whatever it is. I, I think it's actually, actually, it's quite small um, to, to facilitate international trade the way, say, the dollar does, or even the ruble or the rupee or something like that. But uh, I, I do think that, that, that just like for people who are caught in awful situations like hyperinflations or that sort of thing, uh, Bitcoin is, is that life preserver. It's out there you know, to be grabbed onto when there's an emergency and maybe to tie the nation or whatever over while they find other arrangements. Mm. And I guess to bring in some of a lot of what your colleague or our colleague Tom Hogan writes about mm -hmm. sort of like a comp introducing Bitcoin as a competitive yep. and competitive to the dollar just to discipline the Fed. Yep. Um, from the perspective of a U.S. citizen who enjoys, you know, I don't, I don't want to assume what you want the U.S. to do, but let's say, generally speaking, you enjoy the U.S. being, you know, a powerful country, that mm -hmm. the dollar being a dominant currency. Yep. Where do you do you think it's productive to introduce competition to the, our currency in that fashion, or do you do you think we should try to embrace dollar dominancy as much as possible and defend it? As somebody who has money saved in dollars. I, I want pressure on the Fed to do the right thing. And I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think um, one of the, if it's sincere, one of the positive knock-on effects of the mistakes they've made the last few years is that there seems to be an urge on the part of the Fed to sort of uh, 
to, to, to focus on their most important mission, their most important uh, um, uh, 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 purpose, which is uh, price stability. Um, they've said that uh, price stability is their major focus. They lifted, they, you know, they've, they've lifted rates even when a couple of banks failed. They said they're going to hold them for the rest of the year. I don't know um, if they are going to be able to maintain that credibility uh, if uh, the economy enters a recession, which, I mean, I think it will in the next 12 to 18 months. But um, that's, that's, that's something that I think is important. And, yeah, I would love for there to be more pressure on them. Mm. I used to joke around some years ago when crypto was new, and I said crypto is going to, you know, uh, crypto is going to introduce, you know, the, 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 um, the, 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 the uh, copper-backed yen or something. Some mm. nation <laughs> would do something, you know, maybe not gold or silver, mm. but they would come up with some precious metal or some metal that has real you know, solid market value and maybe back it. That hasn't happened, but no, I, I think that uh, I like the sort of discipline the competition brings in, especially in currencies, mm. um, and uh, especially one that's uh, like, like Bitcoin is, um, is uh, without, a, without a nation, you know, it's really sort of independent, like Hayek wrote about. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, I embrace that. Mm. So in the sense of you, you actually believe that having a real competitor to the dollar in the form of Bitcoin would actually help in the sense of keeping the dollar dominant if the Fed chooses to compete fairly and actually discipline itself to make the dollar actually preferable to Bitcoin. One hopes, uh, mm -hmm. one hopes. But I mean, I know there's also a, there's also a, a um, a slander machine that mm, works overtime yeah. in disparaging <laughs> Bitcoin. You know, in any given day, a hundred times more crimes are committed with dollars and euro than with Bitcoin. But to mm. hear the uh, uh, the uh, thought leaders in uh, monetary economics and, and especially policy people in the government talk about it, Bitcoin is uh, you know it's the antichrist of currencies. So mm. uh, you know, uh, I, I I think it's I think it's important to have that sort of competition. Mm. So do you see, let's say, the U.S. government continues, and as you can maybe expect, continues to disparage Bitcoin to uh, prevent people from using it as a serious contender to the dollar. Without Bitcoin, do you see any possibility of people in the U.S. government, the Fed, just waking up and thinking, wow, like what we're doing is destroying the dollar's credibility. Uh, we need to be more disciplined. Absolutely not. There's, mm -hmm. the, I, mean, I mean, government incentives you know, especially in, a, in an electorate democ in, in, in a uh, representative democracy, um, are very short term. Mm. And I think the goal will always be to either print as much or do as much or you know debase as much as they can before their time in office is done. It's hard to do because the Fed is at least nominally independent. But uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think any. I, I don't think a very strong steps will be taken. To to, uh, to to more the dollar to uh, sound money principles um, until uh, there's a, there's a perceptible slide in its value or n nations begin to turn away from it for other reasons. You know, mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, even even if the n nobody was opting into using the the the, the Venezuelan Bolivar, you know, a few mm -hmm. years ago, that sort of thing. So there is a point where. Um, changes or, or you know sort of um, uh, reform becomes a becomes a matter of survival mm. and I, but I think until that point there's no incentive to uh, to firm up the dollar or any of those things mm. and I guess that's a pretty common theme that oftentimes politicians fix things when things just get so bad that they have no choice but to fix things 
But as you said, the U.S. dollar came to dominance through a very unique set of circumstances. Yep. And even then, it took a long time to institutionalize itself and create mm -hmm. staying power. Yep. So do you think once that position is lost, is it possible to regain it with any sense of real um, possibility? So I think what would so so a nation that would overtake a nation whose currency would overtake the dollar it wouldn't send the dollar from first to 30th place mm. overnight it would be a, a case of you know the dollar versus this other currency and the euro and there would be sort of a swirl at the top and then uh, I, I do think that uh, ultimately these these are very path dependent processes but I would say, meaning that, that that once they're set in motion, it's hard to change them. But uh, could it be regained? Sure. I mean, uh, I don't know if it would necessarily be the case if backing the dollar with, say, gold or silver would do that. But um, it would certainly create a better market for, mm -hmm. for, for, for the dollar. It would certainly increase the demand a lot. I mean, uh, right now, uh, Zimbabwe has a project going on where it's trying to back a certain, the Zimbabwean dollar with a certain amount of gold, I think. I mean, that's something I'll be watching closely to see how, you know, how the market for that is and see if there, are, there, if there are people outside of Zimbabwe who are interested in it, if it's even legal. A lot of times they won't sell it outside the country. So, so I, I mean, we know the theory, but it's, it's interesting to watch these things develop in practice. Mm. So I guess one final question to wrap up is, uh, first, does Pete Earl want to start his own central Bitcoin bank? And if not, um, what do you think the average American who's, you know, wants to sleep well at night knowing that the U.S. dollar is facing this sort of um, tension, what, what do you think the big takeaway is? Should they really be concerned that the dollar is going down, you know, going to hell in the hate? I don't even know what the phrase is. Hand basket? Know, yeah. <laughs> should Americans listening to the news, should they be seriously concerned? And if so, what are some basic uh, reforms that they should advocate for? I am not interested in being a central banker, the first question. <laughs> and the, and, the, and the to the second, I mean, again, this is, this is not, this is not, a, 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 uh, a, a, a you know a, a, an exigent threat, uh, not something that's going to happen tomorrow. Or I mean, unless something extraordinarily extraordinary were to happen, you know, ten years from now, twenty years, whatever. But I mean, uh, for 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 reasons vastly beyond the U.S. Uh, remaining the global reserve currency, I mean, I think more citizens should be interested in sound money. Mm. What it means. What it requires, and I mean, it's just—it's an amazing thing that uh, 130 years ago, 140 years ago, I mean, farmers who didn't have much of a formal education understood the difference between backing uh, between a paper, you know, a, a fiat currency, a paper money, and one backed by silver uh, or, or gold. And I think I think that a lot of that's been lost. So I think mm. uh, um, it would be better that people understand the fundamentals of sound money and why it matters, rather than worrying about something somewhat arcane and speculative that's many years away. But eventually those two topics will come together. Pete Earle, research faculty here at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, it's great to have you as well.